0: Well, titles are a f- funny thing, really, when you um, meet somebody who insists on being called by their title. I don't know if that's ever happened to you before, where you've called somebody Mr. and they stop you mid-sentence and say, actually, it's doctor or reverend or something like that. Well, I'm always reminded of the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. He, his official title, I'm sure you've heard it before. This, is, this was his official title. His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal al Haji, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, V.C. D.S.O.M.C., Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general and in Uganda in particular. <laughs> That's his title. I mean, imagine printing that on your business card and having that on your door. Um, uh, Louis XIV, the king of France, he famously had his name officially changed to Le Grand, uh, the Great, and made it a law that anytime you said his name or wrote his name anywhere, you had to say Louis the Great. Um and uh, you kind of ask yourself what what would God want to be called? What is God's title that he wants us to address him as? Would he ever pause us and say, "Actually, you should use this." Well, um, I can tell you what he doesn't want to be called. This has uh, actually happened to me. I was in a fraternal of other pastors. We would um, meet in different pastors' homes and uh, host a lunch. And uh, w- there was a new pastor in town. He was the Anglican priest, so you know he had the little collar. And uh, it was our first time at, at his house and he prayed for the the lunch, and I remember we were all standing in a circle around the the lunch, we all closed our eyes, and he started off his prayer, our parent who art in heaven, and I kind of looked at the other guys, and some of them opened their eyes, and we closed it, and later on, he referred to our mother-father, and afterwards, I mean, I, I was just like, so, who were you praying to exactly, and He thought I was joking, but I was wondering because where does he get that idea? Well, I managed to have a real conversation with him and he explained that, well, in the the Anglican church that he was part of, they reasoned since God is spirit, he is not male because he doesn't have a body and so therefore he's not necessarily masculine and referring to him in the masculine gender would be offensive to women. Um, and so they call him a parent rather than a father, and they all, when they refer to him, they'll say, um, "Father, mother." What's also interesting is that that same denomination um, supports the rights of people to announce their own pronouns um, and say that you have to call me by m- I'm him, her, you know, whatever, her, it, they, or whatever. But they don't let God do that. So we're going to look tonight. What are God's pronouns? <laughs> And how does God want to be addressed? What is the title he wants us to use? So you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We are in the famous prayer, the disciples' prayer, also called the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. And we we looked at the introduction to that last week. Um, We basically learned the main lesson we learned last week is that it is possible to have a wrong way to pray because. Uh, these, the disciples come and ask Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus doesn't say, Don't worry, you, any way you want, God knows your heart. He says, Okay, that's a good question. Let me answer it for you. This is how you should pray. So we looked at the, if you want to learn to play, pray rightly, you can imitate models of godly prayer, um, read the prayers in scripture, be around other prayer warriors who know how to pray, learn how to, to pray that way, imitate models, and also improve methods, which is what this little mini series is going to be about as we go through the Lord's Prayer. So let me just read it for you again. Luke chapter 11, and if you weren't here last week, um, don't be caught off guard by how different this is from the prayer that you're expecting, because when we say, The Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, may thy kingdom come, etc. You've got a little pattern in your head, but that's, that's, the, that's the prayer from Matthew. Now when this is asked of Jesus, um, he gives a different answer, which is what shows us this was never meant to be a formula prayer. You can pray it word for word the way you do, but it's not like that's all you can pray because that's how Jesus intended it. Okay, uh, Luke 11.1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This is kind of an abbreviated version of what you might be used to hearing. Um, And there's a few things we learned right off the bat here. Jesus was praying by himself. So that's one type of prayer is an individual prayer that you're not praying with other people. Uh, But then when they ask him, when the group asks him, how do we pray? He says, pray father, but he starts using Plural language in, in Matthew does the same thing. Our Father, give us each day, forgive us our sins. That's a different way of praying. So you can pray with other people, pray corporately, or you can pray privately. So that's one little lesson we learned. Another one that we learned from verse 2 is he said, well, when you pray, say this. It's just assumed that Christians pray. That's just one of the things we do as Christians. We, we do pray. And today we're actually going to get into the prayer. We're going to get very far into the prayer. We're going to do with the first word. Where he says Father. And we're gonna learn five implications of Jesus' instruction to call God your Father. Don't worry, we will not go through the Gospel of Luke one word at a time. But this is a very important message, really, that we learn that has five implications just from the fact that Jesus starts his prayer off with the word Father. Firstly, we're gonna learn that God likes to be called Father. Uh, Secondly, God must be your spiritual father if you're gonna pray to him. Uh, Thirdly, God Himself Here's your prayers. You don't have to pray through someone else. God alone is your spiritual father. And fifth, we will see that God desires intimacy with you. Okay, so first let's look at this, that God likes to be called father. That's an implication. When you pray, say father. Now, in Jewish circles at the time, when Jesus said that, anyone who heard that may have had a mild cardiac arrest. I mean, this was shocking to say the least. Okay, if you're going to pray to God, this is the title I want you to use. Just say father. This would be, this, this word father would get stuck in their throat like a chicken bone. And why is that? Well, um, in the entire 39 books of the Old Testament, God is referred to as father only 15 times in the whole Old Testament and never once in a prayer. You, you just didn't talk to God that way. A possible, you know, discrepancy there might be Psalm 89 verse 26 when it quotes, He shall cry to me, you are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Maybe speaking of the Messiah calling him that, but not just anybody. So in the whole Old Testament, the the book that the Jews used to figure out how to communicate with God, there is no example and no instruction of calling God Father in a prayer. When you get to the New Testament, on the other hand, in the four Gospels alone... Jesus, God is called Father 165 times. So zero in the whole Old Testament and just in the Gospels, 165 times. And in every prayer of Jesus, he refers to God as Father, except for one. Can you think of which prayer it is? On the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's, he's quoting a psalm. So... Jesus always called God Father when he prayed. No one ever called God Father when they prayed before. So in a word, this prayer is new. And that's why we're going to spend a whole session just on the one word, Father. It is very important that we are instructed by Jesus to call God Father. See, there's a concept you need to become familiar with. It's the concept of transcendence and imminence. Now, there's lots of ways of spelling "imminent" because they mean different things. I'm not talking about um, eminent, like a preeminent person, and I'm not talking about imminent as in something that's going to happen soon. Eminence talks about being among people, uh, being close to you, whereas transcendent means being above. And the Jews had developed an idea that God was entirely transcendent. He was above human beings, he, and that carried even into some Of church history where people thought of Jesus as being only transcendent. They didn't like the fact that Jesus had humanity and that he was among us. That's why in paintings you always see him with a glowing halo of holiness, even as a baby. Um, But the Bible paints the picture that God yes, he is transcendent, yes, he is greater than us in every way, but he desires to be among us and to be imminent and to be close to us and to draw close to us. And so what happened is they liked to view God, the Jews did, as creator and king, but not as father and shepherd and friend. And so if you focus exclusively on the transcendence of God, that's going to create a distance between you and God that God didn't intend. And this is what Jesus is remedying by saying, when you pray to him, call him father. What? What? It got so bad that, they felt so distant from God that they refused to even pronounce His name. Jewish people to this day will not pronounce the name of God. They will never say Yahweh, which is one of the reasons why when I read in the Old Testament, you'll notice in our church, and it says LORD in all caps, that stands for Yahweh, so that it doesn't offend people who don't want to say it. And I'm actually trying to model and teach you that it is right to mention God's name because that's how He revealed His name. And so... Instead of saying Yahweh, they would either say Adonai, whenever they saw the word Yahweh in Hebrew, they would just say Adonai, which means Lord. Or they, when they're talking about it or reading, they would call it the name. So if they're, uh, Jewish people are reading about, if they're reading in English and they get to the word Yahweh, they will say the name because that's his name. But they wouldn't say what the name is, they'd just say the name. So for example, in Psalm 23, it starts off Yahweh Rahim, the Lord is my shepherd, they would read it this way. The name is my shepherd. And uh, in Psalm 113 blessed be the name of the name. Because you can't say Yahweh. So blessed be the name of the name. And here Jesus comes and instead of using, um, this is a cool scrabble word for you, the ineffable tetragrammaton. The ineffable tetragrammaton means the unutterable four-lettered word, four-lettered name. That's what Yahweh is. The Yod, He, Vav, He. It's the four letters in Hebrew that spell Yahweh, which means I am. And it's called the ineffable, meaning you can't pronounce it, tetragrammaton, four-lettered word. That's how they refer to these things. It's just, it's just pretty strange. And then Jesus comes and says, okay, when you pray, you want to pray, this is how you pray. You say, Father. So just let that sink in for a moment. That the creator, your creator, the creator of the whole universe, who could really claim any title he wants, says, when you talk to me, just just call me, call me father. Because that's what I am. It just shows our intimacy with him. And he likes to be called father. That's, he, he gives us that name. He gives us His pronouns in Scripture. He likes to be called He and Him. And He gives us that name, Father, to call Him. Secondly, another implication we learn from the word Father is that God must be your spiritual Father. Another way of saying this is, in order to pray, you must be able to call Him Father because He is your Father. You need to be His child. You need to be a child of God to pray to God. We looked at this last week when we looked at prayers that are wrong prayers. Uh, Wrong prayers are not prayers that are wrong in format not like God chases you away because you got the template wrong. Uh, prayers are wrong when you're not allowed to pray to him asking him for things because you're not one of his. He has no obligation to answer you. You're not praying in Jesus's name. You're not praying for the right things. You're praying sinfully or, or, or your prayer is an abomination to the Lord and all of those verses that we looked at that show that and what God wants to hear from you is a prayer of repentance and once you're right with him now you can ask for anything you want in Jesus's name. But you need to be a spiritual child. Now, you might say, aren't all people children of God? That's a good question. Is it accurate to say we're all children of God? And the answer is yes and no. There's two senses in which people can be children of God. There's the physical sense and there's the spiritual sense. And those two are not the same. In John 1:12, Jesus said, but to all who did receive him, not what Jesus is saying, sorry, John is writing this. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So here's people that Jesus is saying, uh, that, that John's saying, if you believe in Jesus, one of the things you get by being somebody who believes in Jesus is you get the right to be called a child of God. As opposed to a child that's just born of the flesh, born of the will of man, you know, like a human child. You need to be a spiritual child of God. And you, can, you become that when you place your faith in Jesus. That's John 1, 12. Now in Acts chapter 17, 26, it talks about something else. It talks about the physical aspect. Um, Acts 17, 26. And he made, this is Paul preaching um, on, on Mars Hill, and he says, he made from one man every nation of mankind... verse 28, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that like the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. So what he's saying there is we are not stone things. So why are you worshiping a stone thing? The stone thing couldn't have made you. If it's made out of stone, you'd be made out of stone. And so he's saying, you know, we have the spirit of God in us, uh, the image of God. And so he's making an argument. But there he calls them children of God, except he calls them offspring, like physical offspring. So yes, everybody is physical. God made all the nations. We're all children of God. So if somebody says, but everybody's a child of God, don't be the grammar Nazi. You know, don't be like, well, actually, (laughs) not everybody is a child of God. It's like, yes, they are. Everybody's a child of God. God made everybody. But in a very special sense, You're only a child of God when you become a child of God through faith in Christ, right? Now, how do I know if I'm a child of God? Spiritually, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, No one born of God, so John's using this language of becoming a child of God, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So there's the metaphor. God's seed is in you. You're a new creation. You've been born again. You've been born of God. You're a child of God. How do I know I'm a child of God? Because children of God cannot make a practice of sinning. I love the way the ESV translates that, by the way. Some other versions just translated, um, uh, no one born of God sins. And What the ESV does is it makes the the Greek word make more sense of what it's saying. Continually sinning, present act of continuous sinning, makes a practice of it. Because, of course, everybody sins. But the point is you can't call yourself a child of God if you're in a a state of sin all the time without repenting. So that's the second implication. God must be your spiritual father. The third implication is that God himself hears your prayers. This might seem like a pretty simple and obvious one, but when you pray, say, Father, meaning who are you praying to? You're praying to God. And we're like, well, duh, isn't that what prayer means? Yes. And yet, most people on the planet who identify themselves as Christians don't know that. I'm speaking, of course, of the Catholic Church, um, which is the largest branch of Christendom that call themselves Christians, and they don't pray directly to God always. They, they do sometimes, but they believe that you don't have to. So when you use the word pray, when you pray, it means to talk to God. Not like in um, Eastern meditation where you talk to yourself, you know, I mean, you, you tell, or you look in the mirror and you're such a great guy and you're going to do great today and gonna, people like you and you're fantastic. That's not a prayer. That's just, I don't know what that is. That's just weird. That's not a prayer. Um, it's not prayer when you speak to a crucifix. You take it out of your shirt, Jesus, if you, if you let me close this business deal, I promise I will. You know, why are you talking to a little statue on your, that's, that's not prayer. And it's not prayer when you talk to a saint. I was taught as a kid that if you lose your keys or you lose something, you, you pray to St. Anthony. He's the patron saint of lost things. And you ask, St. Anthony, please, can you ask God where my keys are? He knows everything. You tell me, okay? You help me find those keys. I'm going to go look everywhere. You lead me. And you're praying to a saint. We pray to St. Christopher when we go on a, on a journey, when you drive. Because St. Christopher is a patron saint of travel. You know, there's patron saints of all sorts of things. And you don't pray to Mary. Well, when I was growing up, I was taught, you know, if your little Baptist friends ever come to you and say, you shouldn't pray to Mary, which they did say to me. I was to say back to them, we don't pray to Mary, we pray through Mary. So back off. But that's not really true, is it? Because tell me if this sounds like I'm praying to Mary or through Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Does that sound like I'm praying through her? No, I'm calling her the Holy Mother of God. Blessed art thou. I'm asking her for stuff. It's just a lie to say, no, we pray through the saints. No, you pray to them and you ought not to do it. The other thing I was taught is to say to them, well, it's don't you ask your aunt to pray for you or your grandma? I'm just asking Mary to pray for me. Well, there's a difference. I don't ask my grandma to pray for me after she's dead. You know, my aunt's still alive. That's why I ask her to pray for me. You can ask me to pray for you because I'm still alive. Once I'm dead, you stop asking me for stuff, right? You don't pray to anyone except God. So the fact that God hears your prayers himself is a great privilege we don't have to go through a saint. We don't have to go through a secretary. We don't have to, you know, uh, There's nothing. you could just start talking and he hears you himself. And so when you pray, remember that, that you're talking to God. And uh, I like what John Piper says. He says, if you feel you have to interrupt your prayer time to answer a phone call or a knock at the door, at least have the decency to say, excuse me. God is a real person that you were talking to. I, I love that. I'm like, yeah. I mean, if you're going to interact, if you're talking to me, and suddenly your phone rings, you should say, "Excuse me, I have to answer this." Right? Well, if if that happens, you're talking to God. God's a person. You're talking to him. He's in the room. So God Himself hears your prayers. Fourthly, an implication by Jesus saying we need to pray the Our Father or pray to Our Father is that God alone is your spiritual father. And for this, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. You know, in the sixth grade, we had to read To Kill a Mockingbird. And I just loved that Scout calls her dad Atticus. She just calls him by his name. His name's Atticus and Scout calls him Atticus. And I just thought this was the coolest thing. So I would go home in the sixth grade and say to my dad, hey, Alan. And he would be like, do you want the belt? Or do you want the... you know, it's like, what are we going to spank you with for saying that? He, he didn't respond the way Atticus did. Atticus was cool. Um, and I just learned, no, you can call me dad. You can call me daddy. You can call me father. You can call me pa- You don't call me Alan. Um, and I'm glad my, my kids don't do that either. Although if they're in a crowd, sometimes if mom doesn't hear them or whatever, they'll, they'll be like, you know, mom, mom, mom. And there's all these kids saying mom and the moms just learn to tune that out so they can eat their meal. And then suddenly they'll be like, Kim. And Kim looks and i like, don't call your mother that. they like, we've been trying everything else. But um, anyway, it's, there's a reason that we can call God father. He is our spiritual father. Now, when you attribute that to someone else though, it, you're insulting God. So Matthew 23, verse 8 says this. Well, it starts off talking about the, the Pharisees who, who love the place of honor in verse 6 and in verse 7, and they love the greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi by others. So rabbi means teacher, but it's kind of like our equivalent of doctor. Um, you know, if somebody has a PhD or whatever, you call them doctor. So it's a sign of like, respect at their position as teacher. Right, um, And he says this in verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. In other words, you're all on the same level. And then this, in verse 9. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ the greatest among you shall be your servant. So this is, this is interesting, okay? So I, and I asked my professors about this when I was in seminary because we were taught in seminary, you call your professors doctor because they're your professor and they all have doctorates. So you call them doctor, you know, don't say, hey, Mike, you know, you're like, you call him Dr. Grassanti. that's his name, you know, don't call him Mike. Um, but there's, so there's an aspect of, you're addressing the office you're addressing, it's kind of like you salute the uniform. You know, you, you, you call Mr. President, Mr. President in the Oval Office. It doesn't matter if you like him or not. That's, that's a, a, a Romans 13 where it talks about show custom to whom custom is due, show honor to whom honor is due. So there's nothing wrong with that. But when you start ascribing a title that belongs to God, to a human being, and you view that human being as standing in the spiritual place that only God should stand in, You've crossed the line. And so you, you can't call a person father. And you're thinking like, what about Father's Day? What are we going to do about Father's Day? You just said I can't call my dad Atticus. Now I can't call him my father. What do I call him? Okay, this is not ruling out Father's Day. This is not saying you can't call your father a father. It's talking in the spiritual context. So you can't call a man... Father, meaning my spiritual father, because he's not your spiritual father. God is your spiritual father. Now, you might be thinking, doesn't Paul call Timothy my son in the faith? And again, we're not talking about a relational element here. We're talking about a, um, uh, ascribing the, what am I trying to say here, like the, the reverence that's only due to God. And so the the only place that this is actually violated that I know of, and I don't mean to be picking on them, but is the Catholic Church. Um, You call your priest in the Catholic Church Father. That's what you call him, Father so-and-so, you know. And we had a priest, um, and when when Father Spargo died, he was replaced by Father de Milenar, but we were told to call him Monsignor Mark, and I thought this was cool because he has like a higher rank than a regular father. And I asked, so what does Monsignor mean? And they're like, well, that's French for my lord. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's getting even worse, <laughs> you know, according to this. Don't call someone Monsignor. Don't call someone father in a spiritual context. What is the Pope net? We call him the pope, but it comes from papa, the, the Latin for father. Um, so it is a direct violation of that. And uh, by the way, when I was, uh, my, my friend, the monk, um, actually, when I first met him, he was a monk. When I met him again, when we went traveling together, I told you about my friend, the monk, he had been promoted. He was now a priest. And so somebody else on the trip said, oh, so instead of calling you brother so-and-so, do we now call you father so-and-so? And he said, well, when I'm wearing my habits, my monk's habit." then yes, then you need to call me father. But when we're just on the bus or whatever, then you can just call me what his name was. And we had a good enough relationship at this point that I actually opened my Bible to this passage. And I read it to him and I said, I, I love you and I respect you, but it's a violation of my conscience to call you father because of this verse. And he said, no, I totally understand that. And then I said, so how do you explain that verse? And he just kind of chuckled and said, yeah, I know. That's, that's one of the ones that are hard to explain. Yeah, you think? (laughs) Call no end father. Well, please call me father. You know, anyway. um, So just a footnote about when you're praying to our father, God. Is it wrong to pray directly to Jesus then? Because they're asking Jesus, how do we pray? And he says, pray to the father. Well, does that mean you can't pray to Jesus? What about the Holy Spirit? It's interesting to me that um, in the last few decades of church history, if you go and look at all of the hymns that have been written, you know, all the way from the ancient times um, through the Reformation, through the 1800s, you don't find hymns written to the Holy Spirit. But in modern times with the contemporary Christian music, there's lots of songs that address the Holy Spirit directly, come Holy Spirit, come fill us Holy Spirit, we need you here, Holy Spirit, those types of things. I don't know if those are the actual lyrics because they all sound the same, but anyway, um, what about that? And there's lots of songs written to Jesus, so Jesus says, when you pray, pray to the Father. Well, I mean, he's not going to say, when you pray, say Jesus, I mean, he's the one teaching them, but The answer is yes, theologically speaking, you can pray to the Father, you can pray to the Son, you can pray to the Holy Spirit. We understand theologically that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God in three persons. And so you can pray to them and direct them, uh, direct your prayer directly to either of the three persons of the Trinity. But that said, the more you conform your prayers to scripture and the model that scripture gives us the more you will pray to the Father in the name of Jesus the Son through the Spirit that's sort of the language that that the scriptures use so most prayers in the Bible are directed to the Father he's the one that we pray to of course Jesus prays to the Father but again, well, I'm not going if to, if I'm sitting in a prayer group and you pray to Jesus or the Holy Spirit, no one's going to rap you on the knuckles. That's totally fine. I just think that if, if you're praying a lot, as you ought to be, if most of your prayers are directed to the Holy Spirit and not to the Father, you're just missing the emphasis of Scripture that the Holy Spirit Himself has inspired. And He wants us to pray in that way to God. Um, and you'll hear when I pray up front or whatever, I. I pray to the Father, I, pr- I pray to Jesus, and every once in a while I'll invoke the Spirit as well because I'm also trying to teach that the Trinity that we're, you know, we're not we're not Jehovah's Witnesses here. We believe in the Trinity. But the bulk of my prayers are directed directly to the Father. Um, okay, fifthly, final implication of calling God Father in our prayers. God wants intimacy with you. God wants intimacy with you. That's why he instructed us that's why jesus instructed us to call him father because this is what god wants and there's another word in the new testament that we are given that we can use when addressing god as father that's even more intimate it's the word abba in mark 14 36 jesus praying said abba father all things are possible for you abba father so abba is a it's a Hebrew word that means daddy. And even um, if, if you go to Israel, you'll hear little kids when they talk to their dad or they're calling their dad. They're in the park. They're like, you know, push me on the swing. Abba, higher, you know, Abba, Abba. And um, that's just what they call him. Just like you call your dad, dad, they call him Abba. And Jesus called God Abba. And uh, in Galatians 4, 6, uh, Paul says this, because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we have full permission and example and encouragement from the Holy Spirit, apparently, to cry out to God in intimate terms. So you can call Him Abba, or in English, that would be calling Him Dad. And you, I know that that might feel uncomfortable to you. And if it does, it's because you're wrong. It's, it's the same trap that the Jews fell into, saying they want to say the name instead of Yahweh. They feel like they're doing the right thing by being reverent and respectful, by distancing themselves. And I understand, and there's a place for that. But one of the implications of Jesus teaching us to pray and telling us to call God Father, and Galatians saying that the Spirit leads us to say Abba, and Jesus modeling that in his most intimate time in Gethsemane he calls God Abba, is that, God desires intimacy with you. And so, yes, there's a time when you're, you're confessing your sin or there's a time where you're beseeching God for something or petitioning, but there's also a time where you're just like in conversation with God and you can call him dad. And it might, it might feel awkward, so just do it quietly. <laughs> like, just do it in your own private prayer time. Just experiment. That's your assignment this week. Um, I've given this assignment before. Just try it. You don't have to do it out loud. You don't have to do it in a group. No one's even going to know. And I'm not even going to ask you if you did it. So just experiment in your prayers of calling God, Abba, or Dad, or Daddy, or Papa, or anything that in your mind is an expression of intimacy. And it might feel a little awkward at first, but just try it for a week and see if it catches on. And if it is, you're being obedient. So that's good. And... That doesn't mean that every time you pray, you always have to do that because that's not the pattern in Scripture either. Um, but, but there's a time and a place for it. So we must learn and we must let our, our prayers be shaped by Scripture. That's what we said all along. If you want to get really good at, at praying, you need personal training. This is the personal training that Jesus is giving us here. So just respect and intimacy aren't mutually exclusive, right? You can, you can still be respectful and intimate at the same time. Um, you know, a wife can respect her husband and still be intimate with him. Um, foster parents are always very, there's a, there's a moment in your family's life, my, my parents fostered children growing up. We, I had a number of brothers and sisters who were fosters, um, foster brothers and foster sisters. And they come in and they're kind of like, well, what do we call you? And then the parents always say, you can call us mom and dad, but we know that that's awkward, so you can call us, you know, Mr. So-and-so, or you can call us this or Uncle So-and-so, whatever. But then, if they're in your house long enough, and there's, there sometimes comes a time where the foster child will just spontaneously start calling, calling their foster parent mom and dad. And do the parents have like, no, 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 I said mister. No, of course not. That's like so heartwarming. It's just kind of like there's this, this moment of like, yes, they get it. And I, I sometimes feel like that's how God is with us when we cross that threshold from just speaking to Him in very formal terms to crossing into, like, Dad, I really need you on this one. And He's like, Yes, you got it. You know? Again, there's a balance there. You don't have to do it in every prayer, but they're not mutually exclusive. I could just imagine my little nine-year-old coming in saying, you know, Dr. Archer, I beseech you, this worm that I am for a cup of juice. I'm like, no, just say, Dad, can I have some juice? You know, it's like there's an intimacy that's appropriate at that point. <laughs> so think of prayer as just dialing your dad, speed dialing, you know. If you ask me Kim's cell phone number, I have to think about it real hard. Because she's just on speed dial, right? Because she's in that circle that gets to be on speed dial. It's the same with God. Like, you, there's no formal formula you need to go through to get to God. He's just right there. You can just speed dial him at any time that you need to. So I know when you start learning about prayer, like like we have been in the past couple of weeks, you might start feeling paralyzed. That oh, my prayer is wrong. I learned from last week. There's a, a way of praying wrong. So I just want to reassure you that when Jesus says, when you pray, pray, Father, what he's doing is he's, he's lifting the pressure off you to get it right. He's saying, you're talking to a family member here. You're not talking to a king who wants his whole title spelled out, the whole thing. You're just talking to your father and, and you're not going to mess it up. If your heart is right and you love the Lord and you respect him, you're going to speak respectfully to him. Everything's going to be fine. Don't, don't worry about that. And now, just before we close, I I have to stress again, if you want him to be your father, he needs to be your father. And he can only be your father through Jesus Christ. Being in Christ is what gives you the right to become a child of God. It gives you a right to pray. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why people who aren't in Christ can't pray, because you can only pray in Jesus' name. That's why Jesus promises, anything you pray in my name I will answer, if you're not. Which means you can't come to God except through Jesus Christ. So if you're somebody who's been praying and praying for years and never had any answered prayers, try this one. God, forgive me for being a rebel. Please save me from myself and my sin. Forgive me of my sins. And because Jesus Christ lived a life of perfection and. Gave that life up on the cross as a substitute, taking your sin and making his righteousness available. Because that happened, God can forgive you immediately for everything you've ever done and everything you will do. And his justice is intact because he's already punished Christ for those sins. But if you don't repent of your sins and you don't ask him for forgiveness, then you have no business asking him for anything else. Conversely, once you have done that, you now have the right to come to God about anything and everything that's on your heart. And so with that in mind, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love praying to you. And we're we so moved that you ask us to call you Father. And we're so moved to know that you care about us, that you hear our prayers yourself, that you tell us to cast our anxieties on you, That you promised to hear us because of what Jesus did. And so, dear God, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you are our Lord and our Savior. We thank you that you are our Father. We pray that you would be honored, that you would be, um, that you, you would smile and enjoy the worship that you get from us because of our love for you and our desire to talk to you throughout the day, knowing that you... You love for us to come to you as little children come to their dad. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, and we have ten minutes for questions, so QA. Yes, Thomas. Okay. So when an attack comes upon us, how do we discern if it's from Satan or if it's, what's the other? Ourselves. Yeah, like flesh or spiritual. Uh, how would you define attack? What do you mean by an attack? So basically, um, where we come from, every single thing that could possibly go wrong was always the devil. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's such a great question. Okay, let me repeat that part as well. So she's saying that um, in the circles that they, they came from, and in many Christian circles today, whenever anything goes wrong, it's um, described as an attack by Satan. Like Satan's out. To, Satan did that to you, and so you need to deal with the spiritual aspect of what went wrong. And and sometimes that can apply to anything that goes wrong. You know, like um, you got you got a you dented your car, or got a flat tire, or you spilt coffee on your tie. Well, that was an attack from Satan. I mean, and, and so it really does get down to the nitty gritty of anything that goes wrong in Satan, because the mindset there is that what God wants for you is happiness. He wants everything to be good and peaceful and happy in this life. And so when something goes wrong in this life, it's because God's not getting his will for you, which means Satan is operative. But that's not a biblical worldview. So you first want to step back and say, well, the biblical worldview is that God does not desire for you to be happy in this life. He desires for you to be perfectly happy in the next life. In this life, He desires you to be holy. Now, yes, holiness leads to happiness in many cases, but not always. Sometimes your holiness leads to persecution. Sometimes your holiness leads to um, all sorts of detrimental things happening to you. And sometimes detrimental things need to happen to you to help make you holy. So make sure you come on Sunday because our whole sermon on the purpose of trials. So this is fresh in my mind. But yes, um, when trials happen, when bad things happen... My first assumption is always that this is from the Lord, not that this is from Satan, because, because I'm a child of God. So I know that at every moment of every day, God is with me, his spirit is in me, and all he wants from me every moment of every day is to be able to give him glory and to grow in Christ-likeness. So when anything happens, whether it's a, a disease, or a car accident, or the loss of a loved one, or a blow to our church, like a wonderful man like Christopher Lovely being taken from us so suddenly. Anything like that, I always think through, this is the Lord's doing, not this is Satan's doing. Um, Because even if something is a spiritual attack directly from Satan, I still assume that this is directly under the supervision of God, like, like in the book of Job. So Job was somebody who was attacked by Satan. And we know that God allowed that and supervised that and limited that. So even if something is a, an actual satanic attack, um, I still don't, I don't fight on that level. I, I deal with God. He's, he's in charge of that. And whatever he's teaching me through this is what I want to learn. Now that said, there, your, your real question was how can you tell when something is... Um, something that God's doing in your life versus something that's coming from evil forces. Um, And sometimes, like I say, it doesn't really matter because it's all under God and God's the one you run to. But there are certain things that that you just learn over time. Um, If you've been in a church for a long time, you start to spot patterns of Satan's work, like where Paul says um, he doesn't want us to be... um, deceived by the ignorance of the schemes of satan there are certain schemes and they usually involve people who come into the church who are not true believers but claim to be and they can cause all sorts of problems in the church division in the church um, they can lead people into sin they can start rumors uh, so it's usually if satan's operating to affect life he probably doesn't care that i got a flat tire like, that's not, he's not leaving North Korea or the United Nations or wherever he is operating to come and give me a flat tire or spill some coffee on my tie. Like, that's not an attack of Satan. That's just called living on earth and there's gravity and there's other cars. Um, we live in a sin-cursed world. We're not supposed to love this world. We're supposed to long for heaven. So that's just life here. But sometimes when everything's going well in the church and there's perfect harmony and there's unity among the elders and there's purity in, um, in the flock and, and the children are safe and everything and then there's a sudden something that starts happening i've just learned to be like okay i know god's in control of that but this is a danger to the mission of god and and again i wouldn't handle that any differently than i handle any other trial i go to god in prayer i go to the word to see how to apply it you just kind of try to do the next right thing. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So if you, I mean, sometimes there've been seasons in our life where you know your refrigerator suddenly dies and you need it, and then the microwave dies, and then the toaster dies, and then you know your car suddenly needs a service, and they're like, oh well, you have you know your tires are bald, and now you have to change all the tires, and it's all like in the same month, everything I own is turning against me. I'm like, oh, Satan's in the toaster. Um, but some of that's just like, hey, we live in a synchros world, and that those patterns ebb and flow. That's not an attack. Um, I do think sometimes that uh, uh, Satan attacks us through temptations that lead us to react in sinful ways. And sometimes when trials mount up and we don't react rightly, we, can f- we feel like that, well, this can't be from God because it's just too hard for me. Um, and I, I just think we just need to keep recalibrating that God is good, and he loves you, and he's in control of everything, and he's with you. And if Satan's barking at the door, that's because God let him do that. So talk to God about it. Don't talk to Satan about it. Yeah. Great question. Any follow-ups on that or anything new? Miss Laurie? We had some, a little conversation in our group the other day about our deceitful hearts. Mm-hmm. You know, our hearts are despicably you know, deceitful. Who would know it. I'm sorry you hear that. Spirit is is saved, but the flesh is still there. So the the deceitful heart, do we still have it? Because sin is still in our life. Do we still have a deceitful heart? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean it's a it's also it's a good question because you know Jeremiah talks about the the heart is wicked and deceitful and beyond all else and it's sick and it's deceptive and, you know, be careful of it. And the Romans 3 tells us there's no one that seeks God and all that. But then there's these passages that say, well, now you're a new creation. And now you have, you know, your heart of stone taken out. You have a heart of flesh and you have the spirit in you. And then you're like, but then why do I still sin? Um, so I, the way I would say it is this, that when you become a new creation and you're regenerated, you now have a new calling on your life. obey god you have a new freedom from your sin to obey um you have the help of the holy spirit to obey and the resources of scripture that you can now understand and apply and all those things but you're still a human being that was is fallen that hasn't changed and so that's why when jesus says you know the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak so there is a, a there's Temptations come from Satan, from outside, and temptations come from inside, from our flesh, from self. And so that's still there. You now, for the first time, have the resources to conquer that, but they don't go away. So if you ask, do I still have a deceitful heart? The way I would say it is um, I now have a heart that is predisposed to love and obey God and follow the truth, but that heart has has already been tainted by the sin in my life and the things that I've been taught, and the things that I think. And it takes a while for Scripture to reshape those and kind of put that bad thinking out. So the longer, the longer you've been a Christian, the more Christ-like you are, the more mature you are, the more um, Bible you have in your mind, the, the more you can spot the deceit in your own life. That's the way I would say it. You become less vulnerable to your own deceit. But yes, you do. It is besetting us until we are relieved of that in glory. It's not an excuse, though. Yes, Deb? How do you go from the heart thoughts? How do you go from? the From the deceitful heart. And take your thoughts captive. You're asking how to take your thoughts captive? Yeah. Yeah, so the passage uh, that Paul talks about, taking your thoughts, taking thoughts captive, the context there is actually talking about like, the idea of like philosophies and thought schemes that are out there that are attacking us and we need to treat them as you know prisoners of war. But uh, I also like the concept, you know, in Christianese we often talk about take your thoughts captive in the sense of when a thought jumps into your mind from your sin or from outside. So sometimes you're driving down the freeway minding your own business and there's a billboard with a lady in a bikini selling tires and you're like, do I get her if I buy the tires? Like, why is she on the billboard? Like, whats That's just Satan, who's just built a world where he has been able to put temptations in our TV and put our temptations on the freeway and just temptations, all sorts of temptations. Um, and then, so there's that. Those temptations come from outside. But then there's also temptations that just come from our, our weakness. I haven't eaten, so I'm crabby. Um, or I'm upset that this happened, so now I want to gossip about it, that, that person or whatever it is. So you've got both of those things going on and when those thoughts pop into your head you can build a discipline of self-control where you choose not to let that thought linger because remember temptation is not a sin jesus was tempted but he didn't sin so it's not like the thought never ever occurred to jesus of what a sin is it's like no he he was aware of opportunities to sin just like we are and those he he was able to just have the self-control not to and we we have that same power in us so often it becomes a, a, a habit. So if you are habitually trying to guard your eyes, um, trying to guard your, all the different ways that the temptations come in, over time that habit becomes stronger and easier. If you're somebody that gives into those habits all the time, you're just going to feed that difficulty all the time. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, I mean, a good, the example of sexual lust is, is a good example because the temptation, the opportunity to be tempted into sexual lust is always around you. It's always available. And so if you give in to it, it becomes harder to say no. If you say no to it, it becomes easier to say no. Every time. So every time there's that, there's that opportunity, even if you fall once or twice and you pick yourself, you know, the more consistently you make the right decision, the easier that decision becomes over time. And it's the same with any... Uh, Thought that you should take captive like anxiety if you are somebody who's prone to anxiety and then don't watch the news You know Um, Don't fill your mind with that and even when you're not filling your mind with anxiety Forming things you're still going to just think of them naturally because they come from within and when that happens don't dwell on it Don't dwell on it make yourself stop thinking about it I actually have a little technique that I use that's almost a nervous twitch at this point that when a thought pops into my head that I know shouldn't be there I like throw it out And so not many people know that about me. I guess you all do now. But if you ever see me like singing to the Lord and suddenly I'm like that, then (laughs) you know what happened. You know, either that or there was a fly. So you never know. But I just, I I actually literally do that. Like I'm so whatever repulsed at the temptation that's in my mind that I I just remind myself, don't think about it. And I've been doing that for years. I've been doing that since I've been saved. And so now it's easier than it was. doesn't mean the thoughts don't pop in there. The question is, what do you do with that? You're going to linger on what it is, or if, you, if the thought is, I'm jealous that my in-law has a better whatever than me, as soon as that pops in your head, just stop thinking about it. Think of, think of something else. To be, be, be grateful. Yes? No, she knows. She knows. That she's like, sweetie, maybe we should just change the channel. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Yes, <laughs> clean. Yeah, if you want to, see, that takes a little bit more thought, though, because sometimes temptations come, and then, yes, you can respond by saying, is this something that's going to bring honor to the Lord or not? Um, but some sins, or some temptations, shall I say, are a little bit more visceral than that. They're like, they're, you're not thinking about them. They're like, should I or shouldn't I? You know you shouldn't, but you're th- you're thinking about it. I'm thinking about things like... Um, Whatever. Yeah, gossip is a good one because people are all talking about, have you heard about so-and-so or whatever? And then you're like, ooh, I know more about that than you do. And then it's hard for you to suddenly realize, oh, I shouldn't even be thinking these thoughts. I just need to back away from this. But you need to develop that, that habit of like, oh, I'm busy sinning. I need to stop. Um, yeah. Okay. That, one more. John. No problem. one of those things that he, so by implication, one of the things he emptied himself of his deity was his ability to not sin. (laughs) Is that how you would phrase that? No, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take your question and tweak it. Okay, Okay, so what John's asking is, um, when you're talking about Jesus' ability to sin, because he was tempted, he was tempted by the, the devil, when you talk about his ability to sin, your question is, is that one of the things uh, of his divine nature that he emptied himself of when he became... Well, let, me, let, me, let me ask it the way you should have asked it. Um, because you've got to be very careful when you talk about Christ's emptying himself, the kenosis. Like it, he didn't empty himself of any of his divine nature. So if I've ever said that, that was misspoken. You have to be careful. He didn't empty himself of his divine nature. He emptied himself... Of the independent use of his divine attributes, so what that means is he could t- he could he would, he constantly had full access to all of his divinity at all time, but he chose at times to not exercise that aspect without the father's permission for the for a time, for example, I mean he had the ability to Turn stones into bread, but he chose not to, um, for the for the Lord's for God's glory. He had the ability to uh, know all things at all times, but he chose not to know when he was coming back because he, he says that at one point. So those types of things. So he, it's not that he was less divine in, in any way. Um, and so when now relating that to his ability to sin. <sighs> so I don't think Jesus was able to sin in the way that we use that word, because he's all righteousness, and anything that he does is not sinful, um, by definition. He would not contradict the Father's will, because he and the Father have the same will. Um, and it's the doctrine of inseparable operations. They, they're doing everything together, so there is no conflict there. Um, so no, I, him being on earth did not make him able to sin any more than being in heaven. Now, he could be tempted by the devil, but he, was, he would always be able to not sin because of his righteousness and his divine nature. I'm saying that carefully, and I'm, I'm not sure. My friend's getting a PhD in the Trinity. If he hears this, he might disagree with some of the ways I said that. It's a very tricky topic. But I would not say that, um, I, I would say it this way. Jesus felt like he was able to sin in that moment because all of his humanity was vulnerable to that and he sympathizes with our weakness in that way. So he, he felt the full force of the temptation the same way we do and yet without sin. But God can't sin and Jesus is God.